So we're looking at that passage in Judges, uh, particularly verse uh, 11 to verse 19 of chapter 2. Now you may have heard the story of a, uh, which is often told of a youth, of a youth leader at a youth training camp where many boys who attended the training were not from a Christian background. And as this youth leader was leading this Bible study session, he was keen to teach them the truth that God sees everything. And so he asked the boys, uh, if God sees everything we do, what should we do about sin? And of course, in one instant flash of misguided genius, I think, uh, one of the boys answered, well, do it behind his back. Uh, and of course, that is, no, that is one thing we can't certainly do with God, because God uh, sees everything we do. But often we, we behave like that little boy. We think there are some things we do which we can hide behind God's back, as it were. No, the Bible is clear. God sees everything we do, including our rebellion, as we will see as we explore through the book of Judges. And as, as, we, as we have seen over the last few weeks, we are going through this book, which tells us history of God's people after the time of Joshua. That verse 1 of chapter 1 reminds us that these things all happened after Joshua had died. And therefore, uh, it's giving us an account of how the people of God began to take full possession of the land. Last week we were looking at, we began looking at this section of uh, um, Judges chapter 2 verse 6 to chapter 3 verse 6, which I explained that it sort of acts as a summary of the entire book. And it's very helpful for us. It's been put there really to give us the context of the entire book before we begin to look in two weeks' time at the more detailed, well, not in two weeks' time because somebody else will be preaching in two weeks' time, but in three weeks' time when we start looking at the detail of some of the judges uh, that are very familiar to us. And what I mentioned last week is that the book of Judges really is a story of two generations. Judges chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5, tells us a bit about the Joshua generation. Those that lived with Joshua and the elders before they died. And we saw when last week when we looked at particularly Judges chapter 2, verse 6 to verse 10, that the generation of Joshua was a very faithful generation. They served the Lord faithfully because they did not turn to save idols. And the generations that followed, of course, were completely the opposite. Verse 10 of chapter 2 tells us that they did not know the Lord. They were rebellious. And so today we're just going to spend a bit of time looking at verse 11 to verse 19. We're going to do this in two parts. Today we'll look at verse 11 to verse 19. That really summarizes some of these, the elements of this rebellious Generation. I want us to examine a specific question. Does our rebellion against God matter? Does our rebellion against God matter? We all need to know the answer to that question, isn't it? We need to know it not only up here, we need to know it up here. We need to know because we may be rebelling against God in our lives. 
Here are four things I want us to explore this evening about rebellion against God. The first thing we see from these scriptures is that rebellion is prostitution. Rebellion is prostitution. Look at Judges 2 verse 11 to verse 13. The book of Judges here tells us that Israel committed evil. Verse 11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What is the evil thing that they did? Well, he goes on to tell us, And they served the bells. Or is it the Baha'u's? I don't know how you say it. The bells? We'll go with the bells, right? They served the bells. Um, and we are told particularly how they did that in verse 12 to verse 13. Verse 12 tells us, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Behels and the Ashtoreth. The author of Judges actually summarizes not only what they did, but also the stages in which that rebellion took place. Look closely at verse 19 for a, um, for a minute there. Verse 19 reads like this, But when the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And notice what he says, Going, first of all, after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. In other words, there was a stage of their rebellion. They first pursued other gods, you know, a bit like how a married woman would decide all of a sudden to pursue someone else when they are already married, or a married man, of course, if we're, uh, let's, let's be balanced. A any spouse pursuing someone outside the covenant of marriage, they first do that, they start pursuing them. And then they go out of their way to then serve them and almost become like a slave. The word that really means they become almost like a slave to these gods. And they don't just become slaves of these false gods. They then start worshipping them. This is the heart of rebellion. Pursuing, serving, and worshipping other things other than God. And of course, in doing that, what Israel then did effectively is that it violated the first commandment. What does the first commandment say? Amen. That's what it says. You shall love the Lord your God. In fact, it starts off by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's part of the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, by Israel turning to these idols, they breached their covenant relationship with God. God is their faithful husband. That's very important to understand that. Look at verse 12 again of Judges chapter 2. And they abandoned the Lord. But notice what, who the Lord is. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's described as the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, when God took them out and you know, had a covenant relationship with them, you know, at Sinai, and, you know, they gave them these commandments, there, there was a, you know, it was a covenant relationship, the obligations they entered into. They entered into a marriage with God. God was their husband. And by them leaving their husband and turning to desire, they breached this marital covenant relationship with God. 
they committed spiritual prostitution. And that's how God describes it. Look at verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they did what? They warred after other gods, or they prostituted after other gods and bowed down to them. Now, you see, the worship of Baal is no longer in fashion today. We thank God for that. But the world remains an idol factory. An idol is anything in your life that you pursue, serve, and worship rather than God. Well, what that then means is that actually every sin is idolatry. Because when we sin, we are looking after number one. We are pursuing something other than God. And that means all sin is effectively spiritual prostitution. Why? Because all human beings, you see, are already in a covenant relationship with God, which was established in the Garden of Eden. It's called, among the theologians, the Edenic Covenant. All of us, by the fact that God created us, have responsibilities and obligations towards God. Now, of course, Adam breached that covenant, but most importantly, all of our sins we commit abuse that covenant because we are created to worship God and God alone. So, in effect, every human being, by default, is a spiritual prostitute. This is true even for those of us still who are now followers of Jesus. Yes, Jesus has established a new covenant as our second Adam. He has come, if you like, the first covenant was great. Jesus, Jesus has come, created this new unbroken covenant, eternal covenant that can never be broken. But we are now in a new marital relationship with God. So when we sin against God, we are sinning against our husband. Our sin abuses that covenant. We can't break the covenant in Christ, but we can abuse it. In the same way that you, you, you're married, you, you, and you're both, you know, if you like, you're committed to that, and you can't break it, really, if you are very loving to one another, but moments in which you sin against one another, you are abusing that relationship. And I want to suggest this evening that as believers, I mean, I mean, the, the, the fallen world, they have the old covenant and that's, you know, it wasn't created through blood. As such, you know, God created them. But in Christ, we have such a wonderful, new, superior, and broken covenant. My, my, my. It's such a serious thing to sin in that relationship against God. To do it so willfully. Our sins, I would suggest, pains God greatly. The preciousness of our covenant is far superior, the writer of the Hebrews tells us than the covenant established in the past. That means as Christians, we must take our sins very seriously. Yes, our covenant with God is secure because it is an eternal covenant. But that covenant is so precious 
Your sin within that covenant relationship is serious prostitution. So we must ask ourselves this evening, how seriously are you treating sin in your life? Friends, the grace of God that has come to us is not licensed to live in sin. On the contrary, when you understand the amazing new covenant that God has brought, should make you shudder even at the thought of sin. So we must ask ourselves this evening, where in your life are you pursuing, serving, and worshipping other things rather than God? And we must repent that immediately because sin is prostitution. The second thing we see here is that rebellion is not only prostitution, rebellion abuses us. It abuses us. You see here that Israel's spiritual prostitution breaks God's heart. It broke God's heart as we go through Judges. We see this many times. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the anger of the Lord. You see, God is always angry when people rebel against him. Sin provokes or incites God to act against sinners. And all sin always invites God's severe judgment, regardless of who's committing that sin. And we see how God reacts to that. How does God react to it? God reacts, we are told in verse 14. Look at that. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And what did God do? And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. God was so incited by these sins they had committed. What he did was he gave them up. God's judgment involves giving us up. Now for non-believers, the picture of how God gives them up is described where? Where is it described? Romans 1, yes. 24 to verse 25. What as Paul says there? Therefore God gave them up in, their, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and saved the creature rather than the creator who blessed them. We should pause there and think. You see, when we look at the world around us, we may think that the rampant sin we see means God is absent. We may think there is a vacuum of judgment in the world, and we may even be praying that God judges the world. But the Bible says the presence of sin is God's judgment on the world now. God has given them up. He has already judged the world. And what the sin that's taking place in the world is doing is pointing us forward to a more fuller judgment at the end of time. So instead of always, I think, crying 
for God to judge the world quickly, we should recognize that the world is already under judgment and actually we should be pleading for God's mercy to save sinners so that more people are rescued, so that people can see the terrible judgment they are under before it is too late. Isn't that what Second Peter tells us? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Second Peter 3 verse 9. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the spread of sin in our world is the last chance. God is wanting us to get right with God. But notice, let's go back to Judges. Notice the context in Judges is not about God giving up the Canaanites, the non-believers. The proper understanding of that context is actually God giving up his people who are living in sin. Look at verse 14 again, clearly. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand they are enemies. And God gives up his people. What happens to them in verse 15? It's terrible. And they, when they, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for arm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. What's happened there is that in Judges, God withdrew his sovereign protection against Israel. And throughout Judges, we'll see you know, the, the, the people of God being walloped, as I like to use that word, you know, being, you know, properly armored by their enemies. They completely defeat them and they suffer many losses on the battlefield. This is a consequence of their sin and, 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 and it's described in such, you know, very emotive language. Verse 14 tells us that God's people, when God gave them up, they were plundered. Verse 14. They suffered terrible distress. In verse 15, they groaned and were afflicted and oppressed, it says in verse 18. And we are told this situation brought terrible pain, I think, to God himself. Because look at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us this, just the second part of verse 18. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. That's so comforting, isn't it? Because, you see, God feels the pain of disciplining his people. It is not joyful to God to see his people suffering under the rod of his discipline. God, you know, doesn't discipline us. When you sit against him, as if, you know, it's, it's like sort of can't wait to, you know, <laughs> you know, can you or something. No, when we're going under that severe correction for our sin, it pains God. It feels a groaning in our heart. But it must be done. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. This is God himself fighting against his own people. As the Lord had what? Had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them. 
Let me just briefly explain that. What the writer of Judges is saying is that God's character demands that he deals with sin in the lives of his people because God cannot remain a reliable and safe partner of ours if he's turning a blind eye to sin. Honestly, look, if God started tolerating sin in your own life, then God is unfaithful, isn't it, to himself? Now, who wants a God like that? You see, the covenant we have in Jesus is underpinned by the faithful character of God himself. And that character means that God has to punish and correct sin in our lives. And in in the Bible studies we had, we asked that question, does God judge uh, his people? And the answer, of course, is yes. But he judges us to correct the the wrong sin that's there. It's not to condemn us because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has taken on the wrath of God on himself. But God takes your sin very seriously. And he works to correct that. Because it's consistent with his character. There is no partiality in him, Peter tells us. But notice here something important. You know, in the end, the rebellion of God's people here never delivered freedom. Isn't it? It brought their pain. It brought them pain. Sin is not an expression of human freedom at its apex. Sin embraces judgment. If you're a Christian and you're sinning, you know, you're probably thinking about sinning a little bit, you know, to enjoy myself here and there. No! You, 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 you're bringing God's severe correction on yourself. And that severe correction comes from sin itself acting as a road of punishment on your life. The sin we cling to has no happiness attached to it. It only carries pain and suffering. Because sin is its own punishment. Isn't that what Solomon told us in Proverbs 5, verse 22 to verse 23? The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and is held fast in the courts of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly is led astray. And friends, this truth should remind us a very important truth. Most of the problems we face in our own lives, most of the challenges we are facing are caused by us. And our sinful lifestyle. Not all of them, but most of them. We embrace sin and allow inside God in that sense to correct us. We make our bed and lie in it. And so we must repent. But also when we understand what sin does to people, I hope for all of us here this evening, it fills us with compassion and a hunger to take the gospel out. Our neighbors are trapped in sin. Our neighbors, even now, are inciting God's severe judgment. Our colleagues at work are stumbling in darkness. Our family members are on a broad path to hell. And so we must pray for them earnestly. And we must share the gospel. But sadly, the nature of the rebellion gets worse. 
Because the third point this evening is that rebellion against rebellion resists the grace of God. Rebellion resists the grace of God. Look at verse 16 to verse 19. Now all through the time of judges, God never stopped loving his people. Uh, we will see this as we go through Judges. God never stopped loving his people. We will see that God always provided a means of escape from their sins. Verse 16 tells us, look at that. Then the Lord raised up judges. He's summarizing what happens in the book. The Lord raised up judges who served them out of the hand of those who plundered them. These judges that God raised, actually the word for judges is the same. We can replace that word with saviors. So what God was really doing was he was raising up these human saviors who were there to shepherd his people out of their difficulties. Now we know most of these names from Sunday school, isn't it? We know Deborah, we know Gideon, we know Samson, we know Samuel. These judges were going to meet, I think they are very exciting judges, they were going to meet, some of them, who see that you know, they were instruments of God's grace. Some of them were flawed in parts, and some of them you know, were perfect characters as they were, humanly speaking. You know, they were good, they did what was right. But in all the cases, it was God himself acting through these judges to show compassion to his people. God always takes the initiative to serve sinners. And all of us here are glad about that, isn't it? Because in our own sin, we would never have sought God out. We only love God because God first loved us. And we see God's compassion and love for his people in the middle of their rebellion described in verse 18. Look at verse 18. I love this verse. It says, whenever the Lord... Raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies, their enemies, all the days of the judge. And, and he says, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and who afflicted them. Those who afflicted and oppressed them. But then, as we read through that, we see that Israel. Didn't took this for granted. Now, but before we come to that, we should rejoice, though, that this is profoundly comforting to have a God who's there, who listens, who, who works his hand of grace towards us. Even when we willfully sin against him, he's there working to change us. He's moved to pity. But then despite all of that grace, we, we see that sadly the rich abundance of God's grace to Israel did not result in permanent salvation. Israel got into a cycle of decay with each successful generation getting worse and worse. Let's read together verse 17 to verse 19. You see that verse 17 to verse 19. Summarize it beautifully when you read it. First of all, verse 17 says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they warred after other gods and bowed to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And then it says, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. 
For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The, the, essentially, it's like this. What used to happen is that, first of all, God appoints the judge. Israel is faithful during the time God has appointed the judge. Then what happens is the judge dies. And when the judge dies, the people then rebel. And when the people rebel, what happens is that God then hands them over to their oppressors. The oppressors then inflict punishment on them. Then God is moved in his heart with talk with a compassion for his people. Then what he does is he raises another judge. And then the cycle, and of course that judge then dies. You get the idea. So the cycle continues, and we're going to see it in Judges so clearly. But what happens is that with every generation that came, there was a vicious cycle. So if you like the job, God harder and harder, because with every rotation of the generation, sin got worse. And so that, if you only know that truth, then you know the entire book of Judges, what's happening. Well, you, you can miss out maybe some evening. No, do come. But that's, that's essentially the cycle of decay in Judges. The, that is important for us to understand because it seems like God's wonderful work of grace did not provide a rich history of relationship to build on. It seems that God's grace to his people hardened their hearts rather than moved them to depend on him. You see, it seems our sinful nature is always resistance to the love and grace of God because we want God on our own terms. So even when God does good things to us, it's not enough. People often like to pray, Lord, give me this, and I'll save you all the days of my life. I mean, in this room, who has never prayed a prayer like that? I mean, I've prayed a prayer like that. You know, we've gone to God and said, God, you know, if only you could solve this issue here, I will be able to save you here. It's a lie. It's a lie. The truth is we just don't want to serve God. And even if God moved heaven and earth, showed us lavish grace, our hearts are stubborn. Verse 19 tells us they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Friends, our rebellion is not the lack of God's grace at work. In fact, it might be because God has been so wonderful to us, that's why we resist Him. We are so comfortable with the blessings that He's given us. Therefore, we need to overcome this. We need to come to God and be honest about it. But what this also tells us is that we can never do it on our own. We, we, we don't need God just to God to give us good leaders or good rules. What we need is a heart transplant. Because you see, these people, they had everything. Good leaders. But their heart were, were corrupt. That brings us to the final point this evening. Rebellion needs Jesus. We see that in verse 19. The lesson of Judges 
is that the faithfulness of the people of God was always dependent on the performance of the judge. Did anything strike you as you looked at verse 19? Those first words. But when the judge died, all hope and good behavior died with the judge. Israel, if you like, needed a judge who never died. That's how you break the cycle. Think about that cycle I explained. The cycle was okay. They were all right as long as the judge was there. But the moment the judge died, everything broke loose. So what Israel needed is a judge who never dies. But not just a judge who never dies. They also needed a judge who changed their hearts. Give them a new heart of obedience. Because verse 19 tells us they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Their heart was stubborn. So they needed a heart transplant. So the good news of Judges as we go through this book, we'll see that really it's a story that's pointing us to that judge. The stories of Shamgar, Samson, Samuel, the final judge. They are, well, not going to do Samuel, of course, unless we decide to go into Samuel. But Samuel was a judge, of course. All these judges were pointing us forward to that perfect judge. The history of the Old Testament is about God preparing the people for the arrival of such a judge. And what's his name? The Lord Jesus, of course. And like all the judges we meet, we see something of the qualities of Christ in them. We see that Jesus has come to lead his people to deliver them against their spiritual enemies. We see in Samson, Jesus, a picture of Christ as Samson dies for his people. We're going to see in Shamgar as he takes that ox god and goes after the enemy. Out of the poverty of his resources, he serves his people. All of these are wonderful pictures of Christ. And we will see them. And we know that, of course, as we look through the New Testament, Jesus is better than any of the judges. Because, you see, Jesus has come to transform our hearts, to connect us to God, the very life of God. No judge could do that. And no judge is bringing in the new heavens and new earth. Only Jesus will do that. And he's come to do that. The message of Jesus which we see in Judges, is that those who are in Jesus have a new relationship with God because Jesus has established a new covenant relationship. As the prophet Isaiah told us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be what? Wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, In Jesus, we have this perfect judge and leader, God himself coming to defeat our rebellion. And he's come to establish a remarkable covenant that can never be broken. And so, if we are in Christ this evening, as many of us are, whatever your spiritual prostitution you've committed, stop resisting the grace of God. Here is Jesus, your God, who has come. Look to him. And as we go through Judges, I hope we'll be very excited to see just what wonderful pictures of Christ uh, we see in these Judges. Amen.